Part One of Portrait of a Man with Red Hair by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One: The Sea Like Bronze, Section Two. Ten. When he reached the bottom of the hill, he found that he was in the environs of the town. He was walking now along a road shaded by thick trees and close to the seashore. The cottages, whitewashed, crooked, and many of them thatched, ran down to the road, their gardens like little colored carpets spreading in front of them. The evening air was thick with the scent of flowers, above all of roses. He had never smelt such roses. No, not in California. There was a breeze from the sea, and it seemed to blow the roses into his very heart, so that they seemed to be all about him, dark crimson, burning white, scattering their petals over his head. He could hear the tune of the sea upon the sand beyond the trees. He stood for a moment, inhaling the scent, delicious, wonderful. He seemed to be crushing multitudes of the petals between his hands. After a while, the road broke away, and he saw a path that led directly through the trees to the sea. So soon as he had taken some steps across the soft sand, he seemed to be alone in a world that was watching every movement that he made. It was as though he were committing some intrusion. He stopped and looked behind him. The thin line of trees had retreated. The cottages vanished. Before him was a waste of yellow sand. The deep purple of the sea rose like a wall to his right, hiding, as it were, some farther scene, the sky stretching over it a pale blue curtain tightly held. A mist was rising, veiling the town. No living person was in sight. He reached a stretch of hard, firm sand, thin rivulets of water lacing it. The air was wonderfully mild and sweet. Never before in his life had he known such a feeling of anticipation. It was as though he knew the stretch of sand to be the last brook to cross before he would come into some mysterious country. How commonplace this will all seem to me tomorrow, he said to himself, when, over my eggs and bacon at a prosperous modern hotel, I shall be reading my daily mail and hearing of the trippers at Eastburn, and who has taken shooting in Scotland, and whether Yorkshire has beaten Surrey at cricket. He wanted to keep this moment, not to enter the town. Even he had a mad impulse to walk on the sand for an hour, to see the color fade from the sky and the sea change to a ghostly gray, then to return up the hill to Truth and catch the night train back to London. It would be wonderful like that, to have only the impression of the walk from the station, the talk with the boy on the hill, the scent of the roses and the afternoon sky. Everything is destroyed if you go into it too closely, or it is so for me. I should have a memory that would last all my life. But now the town was advancing towards him. His steps made no sound, so that it seemed that he himself stood still, waiting to be seized. He took one last look at the sea. Then he was caught up, and the houses closed around him. 11. Six was striking from some distant clock as he started up the street. 
At the bottom of the hill there were fishermen's cottages, nets spread out on the stones to dry, some boats drawn up above a wooden jetty. Then, as the street spread out before him, some little shops began. Figures were passing hither and thither, all transmuted in the afternoon light. Meredith need not have feared, he thought. This town had not been touched at all. As he advanced yet further, the houses delighted him with their broad doorways, their overhanging eaves, crooked roof, and warm flights of steps. He came to a place where wooden stairs led to an upper path that ran before a higher row of houses, and under the steps there were shops. He could feel a stir and bustle in the place, as though this were a night of festivity. Groups were gathered at corners, women stood in doorways laughing and whispering, a group of children was marching, wearing cocked hats of paper, beating on a wooden box, and blowing on penny trumpets. Then, on coming into the square, he paused in sheer delighted wonder. This stands on a raised plateau above the sea, and the town hall, solid and virtuous above its flight of wide grey steps, is its great glory. Streets seemed to tumble in and out of the square on every side. On a far corner there was a merry-go-round, and there were booths and wooden trestles, some tents and flags waving above them. But just now it was almost deserted, only a man or two, some children playing in and out of the tents, a dog hunting among the scraps of paper that littered the cobbles. A church of Norman architecture filled the right side of the square, and squeezed between its grey walls and the modern town hall was a tall old tower of infinite age, with thin slits of windows and iron bars that pushed out against the pale blue sky like pointing fingers. There were houses in the square that were charming, houses with queer bow windows and protruding doors like pepper-pots, little balconies, and here and there old carved figures on the walls, houses that Whistler would have loved to etch. Harkness stopped a man. "'Can you tell me where I shall find the man-at-arms hotel?' he asked. "'Why, yes,' the man answered, as though he were surprised that Harkness should not know. "'Straight up that street in front of you, you'll find it at the top.' And he did find it at the top, after what seemed to him an endless climb. The houses fell away, an iron gate was in front of him, as though he were entering some private residence. Going up a long drive, he passed beautiful lawns that shone like silk. To the right, the grass fell away to a pond, fringed with trees. Flowers were around him on every side, and again in his nostrils was the heavy scent of innumerable roses. The drive swept a wide circle before the great eighteenth-century house that now confronted him. But it is not a hotel at all, he thought, and he would have turned back had not at that moment a large hotel omnibus swept up to the door and discharged a chattering heap of men and women, who scattered over the steps, screaming about their luggage, collecting children. The spell was broken. He had not realized how alone he had been during the last hour, and with that domination his imagination had been working, creating for him a world of his own, encouraging in him what hopes fears and anticipations 
He slipped in after the rest and stood shyly in the hall while the others made their wants triumphantly felt. A man of about forty, stout and round like an egg, but very shinily dressed, came forward and, bending and bowing, smiled at the women and spoke deferentially to the men. This must be Mr. Bannister, the king of the castle, Meredith had told him in the club. Not the original Mr. Bannister, who has made the place what it is. He is, alas, dead and gone. Had he been still there, and you had mentioned my name, he would have done wonders for you. I don't know this fellow, and for all I know he may have ruined the place. However, the original Bannister could not have been politer. Harkness was always afraid of hotel officials, and it was only when the invasion had broken up and begun to scatter that he came forward. But Mr. Bannister knew all about him, indeed was expecting him. His luggage had already arrived. He should be shown his room, and Mr. Bannister did hope that it would be, though if anything in the least wasn't. Harkness started upstairs. There is a lift there, but if the gentleman doesn't mind, his room is only on the second floor, and instead of waiting, of course the gentleman doesn't mind, and still less does he mind when he sees his room. This is mine, absolutely, Harkness said, as though it had been waiting for me for years and years, with its curved bow window, its view over the enchanting garden, and the line of sea beyond its white wall unbroken by those colored prints that hotel managers in my own country find it so necessary always to provide. Those chintz curtains with the roses are delicious. Just enough furniture. There is no private bath, of course. The bathroom is just across the passage. Very convenient, said the man. Yes, in England we haven't reached the private bathroom yet, although we are supposed to be so fond of bathing. No, sir, said the man, anything else I can do for you? No, thank you, said Harkness, smiling as he looked on the white sunlit walls and checking the tip, that American fashion he was about to give. How strong the smell of the roses! It is very late for them, isn't it? They are just about over, sir." so I should have thought. Left alone, he slowly unpacked. He liked unpacking and putting things away. It was packing that he detested. He had a few things with him that he always carried when he traveled. A red leather writing case, a small Japanese fisherman in colored ivory, two figures in red amber, photographs of his sisters in a silver frame. He put out these little things on a table of white wood near his bed, not from any affectation, but because when they were there the room seemed to understand him, to settle about him with a little sigh, as though it granted him citizenship, for so long as he wished to stay. Then there were his prints. He took out four, the Lepère, Saint-Gilles, Strang's Etcher, the Rembrandt Flight into Egypt, and the Whistler Drury Lane. The Strang he had on one side of the looking-glass, the Drury Lane on the other, the Flight into Egypt at the back of the writing-table, whither he might glance across the room at it as he lay in bed, the Saint-Giles close to him, near to the red writing-case, and the ivory fisherman. 
he sighed with satisfaction as sitting down on his bed he looked at them he felt that he needed them to-night as he had never needed them before the sense of excited anticipation that had increased with him all day was now surely approaching its climax that excitement had in it the strangest mixture of delight sensuous thrill and something that was nothing but panicky terror yes he was frightened of what of whom he could not tell but only as he looked across the room at those familiar scenes at the massive dark tree of the st giles with the hot road the high comfortable hedge the happy figures at the adorable face of the donkey in the rembrandt at the little beings so marvellously placed under the dancing butterfly in the whistler at the strong homely friendly countenance of strang himself he felt as he had so often felt before that those beautiful things were trying themselves to reassure him to tell him that they did not change nor alter and that where he would be there they would be too he took meredith's letter from his pocket and read it again here he was now what must happen next he could dress now at once for dinner and then walk in the garden before the light began to fail or no wasn't he to go down into the town after dinner and to see this dance to share in it even hadn't meredith said that that was what above all else he must do and then what was this about a minstrel's gallery somewhere he would have a bath change his linen and then begin his explorations he undressed found the bathroom enjoyed himself for twenty minutes or more then slipped back across the passage into his room again it was now nearly seven o'clock as he was dressing the sun was setting low in the sky a beam of sunshine caught the intent gaze of strang who seemed to lean across his etching board as though to tell him to reassure him to warn him he slipped out of his room and began his explorations. 12. For a while he wandered, lost in a maze of passages. He understood that the minstrel's gallery was at the top of the house. He did not use the lift, but climbed the stairs, meeting no one. Then he was on a floor that must, he thought, be servants' quarters. It had another air, something less arranged, less handsome, old-fashioned as though it were even now as it had been two hundred years ago a survival as the old grey tower in the market-place was a survival for a little while he stood hesitating the passage was dark and he did not wish to plunge into a servant's room strange that up here there was no sound at all an absolute deathly stillness he walked down to the end of the passage then turning came to a door that was larger than the others he could see as he looked at it more closely that there was some faint carving on the woodwork above it he turned the handle entered the room then stopped with a little cry of surprise and pleasure truly meredith had been right here was a room that if there was nothing more to come made the journey sufficiently of value an enchanting room on the left side of it were broad bright windows and at the farther end under the minstrel's gallery windows again 
there were no curtains to the windows the whole room had an empty deserted air but the more for that reason the place was illuminated with the glow of the evening light the first thing that he realized was the view and what a view the windows were deep-set and hung forward, it seemed, over the hill, so that town, gardens, trees were all lost, and you saw only the sea. At this hour you seemed to swing in space, the division lost between sea and sky in the now nearly horizontal rays of the sun, only a golden glow covering the blue with a dazzling blaze of color. He stood there, drinking it in, then sat in one of the window seats, his hands clasped, lost in happiness. After a while he turned back to the room. Flecks of dust, changed into gold by the evening light, floated in mid-air. The room was disregarded indeed. The walls were panelled. The little minstrel's gallery was supported on two heavy pillars. The floor was bare of carpet and had even a faint waxen sheen, as though, in spite of the room's general neglect, it was used, once and again, for dances. But what pathos the room had! He did not know that, almost fifteen years before, Meredith had felt that same thing. How vastly now that pathos was increased, how greatly since Meredith's day the world's history had relentlessly cut away those earlier years. He saw that round the platform of the gallery was intricate carving, and going forward more closely to examine, saw that in every square was set the head of a grinning lion some high-backed quaintly shaped chairs that looked as though they might be of great age were ranged against the wall being now right under the gallery he saw some little wooden steps he climbed up them and then from the gallery shadow looked down across the room how clearly he could picture that old scene something straight from jane austen with miss bates and mrs norris stiff-backed against the wall and anne elliot and elizabeth bennett mr collins and the rest the fiddler scraping the niggas for refreshment the night darkening the carriages with their lights gathering the door at the far end of the room closed with a gentle click he started not imagining that any one would choose that room at such an hour two figures were there in the shadow beyond the end room the light fell on the man's face. Harkness could see it very clearly. The other was a woman wearing a white dress. He could not see her face. For an instant they were silent. Then the man said something that Harkness could not hear. The girl at once broke out, No, 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 oh, please, Herrick. She must be a very young girl. The voice was that of a child. It had in it a desperate note that held Harkness's attention instantly. The man said something again, very low. "'But if you don't care,' the girl's voice pleaded, "'then let me go back. Oh, Eric, let me go, let me go.' "'My father does not wish it.' "'But I'm not married to your father. It is to you.' "'My father and I are the same. What he says I must do. I do. But you can't be the same.' Her voice now was trembling in its urgency. No one could love your father more than I do, and yet we are not the same. Nevertheless, you did what your father asked you to do. 
so must i but i didn't know i didn't know and he didn't know he has never seen me frightened of anything and now i am frightened i've never said i was to any one before but now now she was crying softly terribly with a terrified crying of real and desperate fear harkness had been about to move he did not unseen and his presence unrealized wish to overhear but her tears checked him although he could not see her he had detected in her voice a note of pride he fancied that she would wish anything rather than to be thus seen by a stranger he stayed where he was he could see the man's face thin white the nose long pointed a dark almost grotesque shadow why are you frightened i don't know i can't tell i've never been frightened before have i been unkind to you no but you don't love me did i ever pretend to love you didn't you know from the very first that no one in the world matters to me except my father it is of your father that i am afraid these last three days in that terrible house i'm so frightened herrick i want to go home only for a little while just for a week before we go abroad all our plans are made now you know that we are sailing to-morrow evening yes but i could come afterwards forgive me herrick you may do anything to me if i can only go home for just some days you may do anything i don't want to do anything hester no one wishes to do you any harm but whatever my father wishes that every one must do it has always been so she seemed to be seized by an absolute frenzy of fear harkness could see her white shadow quivering it appeared to him as though she caught the man by the arm her voice came in little breathless stifled cries infinitely pitiful to hear oh please please eric i dare not speak to your father i don't dare i don't dare but you let me go oh let me go just this once herrick oh, only this once i'll only be home for a few days and then i'll come back truly i'll come back i'll, I'll see father and bobby and then i'll come back they'll be missing me i know they will and i'll be going to a foreign country such a long way and they'll be wanting me bobby's so young herrick only a baby he's and he never had anyone do anything for him but me you should have thought of that before you married me you cannot leave me now i won't leave you i've never broken my word to anyone i won't break it now it's only for a few days how can you be so selfish hester as to want to upset everyone's plans just for a whim of your own for myself i don't care you could go home forever for all i care i don't want to marry anyone but what my father wished had to be she clung to him then crying again and again between her sobs oh let me go home let me go home oh let me go home harkness fancied that the man put his hands on her shoulders his voice cold lifeless impersonal crossed the room that is enough he is waiting for us downstairs he will be wondering where we are the little white shadow seemed to turn to the window towards the limitless expanse of sunlit sea then a voice small 
proud, empty of emotion, said, Father wished me. Harkness was once more alone in the room. 13. They had gone, but the girl's fear remained. It was there as truly as the two figures had been, and its reality was stronger than their reality. Harkness had the sense of having been caught, and it was exactly as though now, as he stood alone there in the gallery, staring down into the room, some imp had touched him on the shoulder, crying, "'Now you're in for it! Now you're in for it! The situation has got you now!' He was, of course, not in for it at all. How many such conversations between human beings were there? It simply was that he had happened against his will to overhear a fragment of one of them. Yes, against his will. How desperately he wished that he hadn't been there. What induced them to choose that room and that time for their secret confidences? He felt still, in the echo of their voices, the effect of their urgency. They had chosen that room because there was someone watching their every movement, and they had had only a few moments. The child, for surely she could not be more, had almost driven her companion into that two minutes' conversation, and Harkness could realize how desperate she must have been to have taken such a course. But after all, it was no business of his. Girls married every day, men whom they did not love, and although apparently in this case the man also did not love her, and they were both of them in evil plight, Still, that, too, had happened before, and nothing very terrible had come of it. It was no business of his, and yet he did wish, all the same, that he could get the ring of the girl's voice out of his ears. He had never been able to bear the sight, sound, or even inference of any sort of cruelty to helpless humans or to animals, perhaps because he was so frantic a coward himself about physical pain and yet not altogether that he had on several occasions taken risks of pretty savage pain to himself in order to save a horse a beating or a dog a kicking nevertheless those had been spontaneous emotions roused at the instant there was something lingering a sad and tragic echo in the voice that was still with him the very pathos of the room that he was in, the lingering of so many old notes that had been rung and rung again, notes of anticipation, triumph, disappointment, resignation, made this fresh, living sound the harder to escape. By Jupiter, the child was frightened. That was the final ringing of it upon Harkness's heart and soul but he was going to have his life sufficiently full were he to step in and rescue every girl frightened by matrimony rescue no there was no question of rescue it wasn't once again his affair but he did wish that he could just take her hand and tell her not to worry that it would all come right in the end but would it he hadn't at all cared for the fragment of countenance that fellow had shown to him, and he had liked still less the tone of his voice. Cold, unfeeling, hard. Poor child! And suddenly the thought of his Browning's Duchess came to him. I was the man the Duke spoke to. I helped the Duchess to cast off his yoke, too. So here's the tale from beginning to end, my friend. 
Well, here was a tale with which he had definitely nothing to do. Let him remember that. He was here in a most beautiful place for a holiday. That was his purpose, that his intention. What were these people to him or he to them? Nevertheless, the voice lingered in his ear, and to be rid of it, he left the room. He stepped carefully down the wooden steps, and then at the bottom of them, under the dark lee of the gallery, he paused. He was so foolishly frightened that he could not move a step. He waited. At last he whispered, "'Is there anyone there?' There was no answer. He pushed his way out of the shadow, his heart drumming against his shirt. There was no one there. Of course there was not. In his room once more, with his friend Strang and the Rembrandt donkey to take him home, he sat on his bed, holding his hands between his knees. He was positively afraid of going down to dinner. Afraid of what? Afraid of being drawn in. Drawn into what? That was precisely what he did not know, but something that ever since his first glimpse of Meredith at the Reform Club had been preparing. It was that he saw, as he sat there thinking of it, that he feared this something that was piling up outside him and with which he had nothing to do at all. Why should he mind, because he had heard a girl say that she was frightened and wanted to go home? And yet he did mind, minded terribly, and with increasing violence from every moment that passed. The thought of that child without a friend and on the very edge of an experience that might indeed be fatal for her, the thought of it was more than he could endure. He was clever at escaping things, did they only give him a moment's pause. But in this case, the longer he thought about it, the harder it was to escape from. It was as though the girl had made her personal appeal to himself. But what an old scamp her father must be, Harkness thought, to give her up like this to a man for whom she has no love, who doesn't love her. Why did she do it? And what kind of a man is the father-in-law of whom she is so afraid and who dominates his son so absolutely? In any case, I must go down to dinner. I must just take what comes. Yes, but his prudence whispered, don't meddle in this affair actively. It isn't the kind of thing in which you are likely to distinguish yourself. No, by Jove, it isn't. Well, then be careful. I mean to be. Then suddenly the girl's voice came sharp and clear. Damn it, I'll do anything I can, he cried aloud, jumped from the bed, and went downstairs. 14. As he went downstairs, he felt a tremendous sense of liberation. It was as though he had, after many hesitations and fears, passed through the first room successfully and closed the door behind him. Now there was the second room to be confronted. What he immediately confronted was the garden of the hotel. The sun was slowly setting in the west, and great amber clouds, spreading out in swaths of color, ate up the blue. The amber flung out arms as though it would embrace the whole world. The deep blue ebbed from the sea, was pale crystal, then from length to length a vast bronze shield. The amber receded as though it had done its work, 
and myriads of little flecks of gold ran up into the pale blue white thousands of scattered fragments like coins flung in some godlike largesse the bronze sea was held rigid as though it were truly of metal the town caught the gold and all the windows flashed in the fresh evening light the grass of the lawn seemed to shine with a fresh iridescence the farther hills were coldly dark several people were walking up and down the gravel paths pausing before going in to dinner in the golden haze only those things stood out that were more important for the scene nature as always being more theatrical than any man-contrived theatre the stage being set the principal actor made his entrance a window running to the gravel path caught the level rays of the setting sun a man stepped before this stopping to light a cigarette and then being there stayed like an oriental image staring out into the garden harkness looked casually then looked again then fascinated remained watching he had never before seen such red hair nor so white a face nor so large a stone as the green one that shone in a ring on the finger of his raised hand he was lighting his cigarette it was after this that he fell into rigid immobility and the fire of the match caught the ring until like a great eye it seemed to open wink at harkness and then regard him with a contemptuous stare the man's hair was en brosse standing straight on end as loges used to do in the old pre-war byrote ring it was like loges a flaming red short harsh instantly arresting evening dress one small black pearl in his shirt very small feet in shining shoes there had stuck in harkness's mind a phrase that he had encountered once in george moore's description of verlaine in memories and opinions i shall not forget the glare of the bald prominent forehead un tete glabra that was the phrase now un tete glabra the forehead glaring like a challenge the red hair springing from it like something alive of its own independence for the rest this interesting figure had a body round short and fat like a ball over his protruding stomach stretched a white waistcoat with three little plain black buttons the color of his face had an unnatural pallor something theatrical like the clown in pagliacci or again like one of benda's masks yes this was the truer comparison because through the mask the eyes were alive and beautiful dark tender eloquent but spoilt because above them the eyebrows were so faint as to be scarcely visible the mouth in the white of the face was a thin hard red scratch the eyes stared into the garden the body soon became painted into the window behind it the round short limbs the shining shoes the little black pearl in the gleaming shirt harkness from the shadow where he stood looked and looked again then fearing that he might be perceived and his stare be held offensive he moved forward. The man saw him, and to Harkness's surprise, stepped forward and spoke to him. "'Ah, 
beg your pardon he said but do you happen to have a light my cigarette did not catch properly and i've used my last match here was another surprise for harkness the voice was the most beautiful that he had ever heard from man soft exquisitely melodious with an inflection in it of friendliness courtesy and culture that was enchanting absolutely without affectation why yes certainly said harkness he felt for his little gold match-box found it produced a match and guarding it with his hand struck it in the light the other's forehead suddenly sprang up again like a living thing for an instant two of his fingers rested on harkness's hand they seemed to be so soft as to be quite boneless thank you what an exquisite evening yes said harkness this is a very beautiful place yes said the other is it not and this is incidentally the best hotel in england the voice was so beautiful to harkness who was exceedingly sensitive to sound that his only desire was that by some means he should prolong the conversation so that he might indulge himself in the luxury of it i have only just arrived he said i came only an hour ago and it is my first visit is that so then you have a great treat in store for you this is splendid country round here and although every one has been doing their best to spoil it there are still some lovely places trellis is the only town in southern england where the place is still triumphant over modern improvements there was a pause and then the man said uh, will you be here for long i've made no plans harkness replied i wish i could show you around a little i know this country very well there is nothing i enjoy more than showing off some of our beauties but unfortunately i leave for abroad early to-morrow morning harkness thanked him they were soon talking very freely walking up and down the gravel path the exquisite modulation of the man's voice its rhythm gentleness gave harkness such delight that he could listen forever they spoke of foreign countries harkness had travelled much and remembered what he had seen this man had been apparently everywhere suddenly a gong sounded ah there's dinner they paused the stranger said i beg your pardon you tell me that you are american and i know therefore that you are not hampered by ridiculous conventionalities are you alone i am said harkness well then why not dine with us there is myself my son and a charming girl to whom he has lately been married do me that pleasure or if people are a bore to you be quite frank and say so oh i shall be delighted said harkness good my name is crispin harkness is mine they walked in together fifteen he had as they walked into the hall an overwhelming sense that everything that was occurring to him had happened to him before and it was only part of this dream conviction that crispin should pause and say here they are waiting for us and lead him up to the girl who half an hour before had been with him in the little gallery 
he had even a moment of protesting panic crying to the little imp whose voice he had already heard that evening let me out of this i'm not so passive as you fancy it is a holiday i'm here for there is no knight errant me you've caught the wrong man for that but the girl's face stopped him she was beautiful he had from the first instant of seeing her no doubt of that and it was as though her voice had already built her up for him in that dim room straight and dark her face had childlike purity in its rounded cheeks its large brow and wondering eyes its mouth set now in proud determination but trembling a little behind that pride its cheeks very soft and faintly coloured her hair was piled up as though it were only recently that it had come to that distinction she was wearing a very simple white frock that looked as though it had been made by some little local dressmaker of her own place she had been proud of it delighted with it harkness could be sure perhaps only a week or two ago now experiences were coming to her thick and fast she was clutching them all to her determined to face them whatever they might be finding them as harkness knew from what he had overheard more terrible than she had ever conceived she had been crying as he knew only half an hour ago but now there were no traces of tears only a faint shell-like flush on her cheeks the man standing beside her was not much more than a boy but harkness thought that he had seldom perceived an uglier countenance a large broad nose a long thin face like a hatchet grey colourless eyes and a bony body upon which the evening clothes sat awkwardly here was ugliness itself but the true unpleasantness came from the cold aloofness that lay in the unblinking eyes the hard straight mouth he might be walking in his sleep harkness thought for all the life he's showing what a pair for the girl to be in the hands of harkness was introduced esther my dear this is mr harkness who's going to give us the pleasure of dining with us mr harkness this is my boy herrick the little man led the way and it was interesting to perceive the authoritative dignity with which he moved he had a walk that admirably surmounted the indignities that the short legs and stumpy body would in a less clever performer have inevitably entailed he did not strut nor trot nor push out his stomach and follow it with proud resolve his dignity was real almost regal and yet not absurd he walked slowly looking about him as he went he stopped at the entrance of the dining hall now crowded with people spoke to the head waiter a stout pompous-looking fellow who was at once obsequious and started down the room to a reserved table the diners looked up and watched their progress but harkness noticed that no one smiled when they came to their table in the middle of the room mr crispin objected to it and they were at once shown to another one beside the window and looking out to the sea it will amuse you to see the room hester you sit there you can look out of the window too when you are bored with people will you sit here mr harkness on my right harkness was now opposite the girl 
and looking out to the sea that was lit with a bronze flame that played on the air like a searchlight the window was slightly open and he could hear the sounds from the town the merry-go-round a harsh trumpet and once and again a bell do you mind that window crispin asked him i think it is rather pleasant you don't mind it hester dear they are having festivities down there this evening the light of their annual ceremony when they dance round the town something as old as the hill on which the town is built i fancy you ought to go down and look at them mr harkness oh, i think i will harkness replied smiling he noticed that now that the man was seated he did not look small his neck was thick his shoulders broad that forehead in the brilliantly lit room absolutely gleamed the red hair springing up from it like a challenge the mention of the dance led crispin to talk of other strange customs that he had known in many parts of the world especially in the east yes he had been in the east very often and especially in china the old china was going you would have to hurry up if you were to see it with any colour left it was too bad that the west could not leave the east alone the matter with the west mr harkness is that it always must be improving everything and everybody it can't leave well enough alone it must be thrusting its morals and customs on people who have very nice ones of their own only they are not western that's all we have too many conventional ideas over here suspicious observances that are just as foolish as any in the south seas more foolish indeed now i'm shocking you hester i'm afraid hester he explained to harkness is the daughter of an english country doctor a very fine fellow but she hasn't travelled much yet she only married my son a month ago this is their honeymoon and it is very nice of them to take their old father along with them he appreciates it my dear he raised his glass and bowed to her she smiled very faintly staring at him for an instant with her large brown eyes then looking down at her plate i have been driven crispin explained into the east by my collector's passions as much as anything you know perhaps what it is to be a collector not of anything especial but a collector something in the blood worse than drugs or drink something that only death can cure i don't know whether you care for pretty things mr harkness but i have some pieces of jade and amber that would please you i think i have i think one of the best collections of jade in europe harkness said something polite the trouble with the collector is that he is always so much more deeply interested in his collection than any one else is and he is not so interested in a thing when he owns it as he was when he was wondering whether he could afford it however women like my jade their fingers itch it is pleasant to see them have you ever felt the collector's passion yourself in a tiny way only said harkness i have always loved prints very dearly etchings especially but i have so small and unimportant a collection that i never dream of showing it to anybody i have not the means to make a real collection but if i were a millionaire it is in that direction that i think i would go etchings are so marvellously human unaccountably personal 
Why, Herrick, listen to that. Mr. Harkness cares about etchings. We must show him some of ours. I have a hundred guilders and a de jong that are truly superb. Do you know my favorite etcher in the world? I am sure that you will never guess. Oh, there's a large field to choose from, said Harkness, smiling. Oh, there is indeed, but Samuel Palmer is the man for me. You will say that he goes oddly enough with my jade, but whenever I travel abroad, the bellman and the ruined tower go with me. And then Le Père, what a glorious artist, and Le Gros, woolly trees, and our old friend Caillot. Yes, we have an enthusiasm in common there. For the first time Harkness addressed the girl directly, do you also care about etchings mrs crispin she flushed as she answered him i am afraid that i know nothing about them our things at home are not very valuable i am afraid except to us she added she spoke so softly that harkness scarcely caught her words ah but hester will learn crispin said she has a fine taste already it needs only some more experience you are learning already are you not hester yes she answered almost in a whisper then looked up directly at harkness he could not mistake her glance it was an appeal absolutely for help he could see that she was at the end of her control her hand was trembling against the cloth she had been drinking some of her burgundy and he guessed that this was a desperate measure he divined that she was urging herself to some act from which during all these weeks she had been shuddering his own heart was beating furiously the food the wine the lights crispin's strange and beautiful voice were accompaniments to some act that he saw now hanging in front of him or rather waiting as a carriage waits into which now of his own free will he is about to step to be whirled to some terrific destination he tried to put purpose into his glance back to her as though he would say let me be of some use to you i'm here for that you can trust me he felt that she knew that she could she might such was her case trust any one at this crisis but she had been watching him he felt sure throughout the meal listening to his voice steadying his movements wondering perhaps whether he too were in this conspiracy against her he had the sudden conviction that on an instant she had resolved that she could trust him and had he had time to do so as was usual with him to step back and regard himself he would have been amazed at his own happiness they had come to the dessert crispin as though he had no purpose in life but to make everyone happy was cracking walnuts for his daughter-in-law and talking about a thousand things there was nothing apparently that he did not know and nothing that he did not wish to hand over to his dear friends it is too bad that i can't show you my hundred guilders he cracked a walnut, and his soft, boneless fingers seemed suddenly to be endued with an amazing strength. But why shouldn't I? What are you doing this evening? I have no plans, said Harkness. I thought I would go perhaps down to the market and look at the fun. Yes, well, let me see. 
but that will fit splendidly we have an engagement for an hour or two to say good-bye to an old friend why not join us here at uh, say half-past ten i have my car here it is only half an hour's drive come out for an hour or two and see my things it will give me so much pleasure to show you what i have i can offer you a good cigar too and some brandy that would please you what do you say harkness looked across at the girl thank you he said gravely i shall be delighted that's splendid very good of you the house also should interest you very old and curious it has a history too i have rented it for the last year i shall be quite sorry to leave it then smiling he leant across what do you say hester shall we have our coffee outside yes thank you she answered with a curious childish inflection as though she were repeating some lesson that was only half remembered she rose and started down the room harkness followed her halfway to the door crispin was stopped for a moment by the head waiter and stayed with his son harkness spoke rapidly there's no time at all but i want you to know that i was in the room at the top of the house just now when you were there i heard everything i apologize for overhearing i could not escape but i want you to know that if there's anything i can do anything in the world i will do it tell me if there is we have only a moment on looking back afterwards he thought it marvellous of her that realizing who was behind them she scarcely turned her head showed no emotion but speaking swiftly answered yes i'm in great trouble desperate trouble i'm sure you are kind there is a thing you can do tell me he urged they were now nearly by the door and the two men were coming up i have a friend i told him that if i would agree to his plan i would send a message to him to-night i did not mean to agree but now i'm not brave enough to go on he is to be at half-past nine at a little hotel the feathered duck on the sea-front any one will tell you where it is his name is dunbar he is young short you can't mistake him he will be waiting there go to him tell him i agree i'll never forget crispin's forehead confronted them what do you say to this here is a sheltered corner dunbar dunbar where had he heard the name before they all sat down end of part one section two